Islam, as we have pointed out from time to time, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each paragraph of this uh, psalm deals with or begins with uh, one of those Hebrew letters. Each letter is represented by a paragraph of eight verses each, and in those paragraphs, every one of the eight verses begins with the same Hebrew letter of the paragraph itself. Tonight we begin with Psalm 119, 105. N-U-N is the Hebrew letter. Nun or Nun, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not even sure of the pronunciation in the proper Hebrew, but it corresponds, as we might expect, to our letter N in the English alphabet. And in these eight verses we look at tonight, each one of those verses will begin with that same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We've mentioned before that we're not sure why the Holy Spirit inspired the psalmist to to structure this psalm as he did, perhaps for easy memorization. We simply do not know. But as we have also said many times, what we do know is that it is inspired by God, that it is a psalm that truly exalts the Word of God as does no other portion of Scripture. Because in every one of these 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible, or the 176 verses, each one of those verses, in some way, exalts the Word of God. And in the one at which we begin to look tonight in this particular section of eight verses in this paragraph, that word is likened to a lamp. The psalmist writes, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I mentioned this morning that that uh, Jared Huter had uh, dealt with a, a beautiful word study on light in a two-part uh, segment, and I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time here. If you were privileged to be a part of those studies, you had an excellent insight into how light is so important, not only in the world, but also in the Word, and how that light is uh, used in various ways, and the importance and the significance of light as far as God's people are concerned. Jared mentioned this particular verse as a part of that study. Light is vital in the world, and light is vital in the Word. And more than once it is referred to as light. It gives light. Later on in this very psalm, it's Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of your word, the psalmist will write, gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. That's a verse that, Lord willing, we will ultimately study, but it ties in with this verse so beautifully. The entrance of your word gives light. The entrance of physical light gives light. It gives understanding. It gives clarity. It allows us to see clearly what we desire to see. Jared, in his presentation, mentioned the the darkness of the final or the next to the final plague of Uh, of God against the Egyptians, the final plague being the death of the firstborn. But that, that ninth plague of darkness was a darkness that, as Scripture says, could be felt, as it were. It was a darkness that, um, could be felt. I've been in that kind of darkness, I think, or as close to it as you could, could ever get. 
Many of you have probably been to Mammoth Cave, but I believe that's the darkest uh, remembrance that I have at any point in my life is visiting briefly Mammoth Cave and then having them turn out all the lights when you're in the, the depth of that cave. And you've heard the expression, you can't see your hand in front of your face. Well, you can't see your hand uh, in front of your face. And it is a, a rather eerie feeling. It's a, it's a frightening feeling, really. You know where you are. You know what they've done. You know, or at least you think you know, the lights are going to come back on. But nonetheless, it is, uh, it is a sobering uh, sobering thing. But you know, as I think about this, and so much could be said about the analogy of light to the Word of God, the light of the gospel, uh, typified by that uh, seven-pronged candlestick under the tabernacle that, that prefigured or typified uh, the continual light of the gospel that uh, would ultimately shine into the hearts of a great many people and that word, that light, will never go out for as long as time stands because Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And yet, as available as that light is in the world in which we live tonight, perhaps more available than it has ever been in our lifetime, in any generation, the availability of Bibles, the availability of the Word of God, not only nationwide, but pretty much worldwide, we could say, it is tragic to think about how few are taking full advantage of that light. I could only think about being in a dark situation with a flashlight in my hand, a perfectly good flashlight with good batteries in it, and trying to stumble my way along a pathway to reach a goal with a flashlight in hand, and yet never bothering to turn it on and to point it in the direction that I am moving. Who would do that? No one in his right mind would, would fail to utilize a flashlight in a situation like that. And yet think of how many people, and yes, tragically sometimes in the church, how many take so little advantage of the light of God's Word that they can easily hold in their hand, that they can easily open, that they can easily study to their heart's content, really. And yet precious few really meditate upon the word of God. But the psalmist appreciated it and really called upon us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he penned these words to see it as he saw it, to use it as he used it, to have it benefit us as it obviously benefited him, both in the good times and in the bad times. And then he continues in verse 106. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. This is a statement of determination. This is a statement of, of dedication. I have sworn. Is every, is every oath that we could take wrong? No, not every oath is, is, um, is wrong. There were those in Scripture who called God to witness uh, in certain situations. There are some uh, frivolous frivolous oaths that are clearly condemned uh, as James uh, condemns them in his epistle and as the Lord himself condemned what some of the Jews were in the habit of practicing uh, with playing word games with frivolous oaths and those things are, are, uh, are condemned. We've studied that when we studied the book of James for example but not every oath is wrong. In fact the Lord himself 
The Lord God himself took an oath. If you'll look at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. You know, there's a sense that we take an oath, if you will, or a vow when we become Christians. Because when we become Christians, we are vowing to be faithful to the spiritual bridegroom to whom we are married, and that spiritual bridegroom is Jesus Christ. That analogy is used more than once in Scripture, isn't it? In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Paul writes, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We make a vow, as it were, when we become children of God, when we become Christians, to be faithful to the bridegroom, to Jesus Christ. Remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the second epistle, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he talked about, or verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So that analogy, the marriage analogy, is used on more than one occasion. We make a vow, as it were, when we become Christians. As the psalmist here dedicated himself to keep the righteous judgments of God, so do we when we become children of God. And we recognize that we are making a commitment, as we talked about this morning, that represents a complete transformation, a complete change, because we have become a new creation in Christ. But you know, speaking of vows, we break that vow to our Savior, to our spiritual bridegroom, when we become unfaithful to him. James uses that very analogy in James 4 and verse 4 when he says, You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whoever desires to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And so we vow to be faithful to the bridegroom, the spiritual bridegroom, Christ. And when we become unfaithful, then we break that precious vow. The psalmist here expresses a determination to keep his vow. Now, affliction comes up again here in this next verse, verse 107, where the psalmist writes, I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Look with me at some verses that we have covered before in this 119th psalm and see the repeated theme of affliction that permeates this psalm because time and again the psalmist depicts the affliction that he was suffering go back to verse 50 there he says this is my comfort in my affliction for your word has given me life then drop down to verse 67 of the psalm before I was afflicted I went astray but now I keep your word then verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then verse 92, unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. Affliction, affliction, affliction. Time and again, the psalmist 
depicts the affliction that he was in. If David is the author of the psalm, as many contend, he certainly knew firsthand what affliction was. Some of it was the consequence of his own sin, and yet he bore that consequence faithfully and repented of those sins. But the affliction came to him time and time again, some of which he was responsible for it, as I said, but other afflictions were because of those who were his enemies. I like what Brother Robert Taylor said along this line. He said, frequently Jesus told his disciples that there would be a cross to bear before there would be a crown to be worn. A cross to bear before there's a crown to be worn. And that we talked about somewhat this morning in the lesson where we dealt with persecution. But notice something else here. I am afflicted very much. Revive me, O Lord, according to the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. No. What does he say? Revive me in my affliction according to your what? Again, he's exalting the word of God. The all-sufficiency, the power of the word of God. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. If the psalmist could rely totally upon the word of God to revive him under a covenant that was inferior to the covenant under which we live today, how much more should we rely upon the all-sufficiency of the word of God to guide us and to revive us when we are afflicted? What more do we need than the all-sufficient, all-powerful, fully inspired word of God? And then in 108, here is his plea. Accept, I pray, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. Notice he says, the offerings of my mouth, which could indicate that prayer is involved here. Accept my prayers that I offer. Accept my praise that I offer. But you know what came to my mind as I was looking at this too is the free will offerings that we offer by mouth as we sing praises to God. And it is a sobering reminder of how we should all participate in that beautiful act of worship. And as we've said before, it doesn't matter whether I have a beautiful voice or whether I can't carry a tune in a bucket as the expression goes. That's not important to God. What is important is my participation my participation, and that my participation is voluntary, that it's offered freely, that it is offered willfully. Free will is a very important qualifying word in this statement, and it's something about which God has always been concerned, that our offerings, whether they are the offerings of our mouth, whether they are the offerings of our purse, our money, or our mouth, we could say, let them be free will offerings and let them be from hearts that are overflowing with gratitude for what God has so freely given to us. You know, there was one occasion in Scripture where people had to be restrained from giving. You remember it in Exodus chapter 35 regarding the tabernacle? As the people of Israel were bringing those things for the construction of the tabernacle, they brought so much that they had to issue a restraining order. <laughs> Moses had to issue a restraining order telling them not to give any more. Don't you wish we had to issue a lot of restraining orders? 
uh, today uh, in the Lord's kingdom. But God does love a cheerful giver. He loves a generous giver. But the giving that God is concerned about is not just the giving of our means, but the givings that come from our mouths, the free will offerings of prayer and praise to him. But this verse also reminds us that he also loves a teachable disposition. He not only loves a generous giver, but he also loves a teachable disposition. Notice, O Lord, and teach me your judgments. The psalmist says, here I am, as it were, an empty bucket, fill me up. That should be the attitude of every child of God. As we come to the study of the Word of God and as we come there often and drink deeply from that Word, our attitude ought to be, teach me your judgments. You know, Jesus used little children so many times as beautiful illustrations of the attitude that should characterize those who make up the kingdom of God. Unless you become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What are some of the attributes of little children? We've talked about it before, but one of those attributes of a little child is that he or she is very teachable, eager to learn, extremely teachable. That's what children of God are to be. And so the psalmist depicts that here when he says, Lord, teach me your judgments. And then in verse 109, the psalmist expresses an ever present danger. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. What's he saying? My life is continually in my hand. He recognized under the circumstances that were present in his life, whatever those were at this time, that his life was, was in a very, very, very frail, frail position. That something was amiss there in terms of the enemies, and we'll get more insight into that as we read on in this paragraph, but there were those who were, as he will say here in a few future verse that have laid a snare for him. So this was a troublesome time in the psalmist's life. It was a time when his life was at stake. It was a time when, as he put it, my life is in my hand. There was, a, there was an ever-present danger. Now, David, remember on one occasion in 1 Samuel 20 and verse 3, to Jonathan, as Jonathan, Jonathan's own father, King Saul, was trying to take the life of David because of his insane jealousy, literally insane jealousy of him. David said on that occasion to his dear friend Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. 1 Samuel 20 and verse 3. Now that was a statement that he made because of the present predicament that he was in, the danger that he faced, and there's a similar danger that obviously exists here as he makes this expression, my life is continually in my hand. But the statement, my life is continually in my hand, applies to all of us regardless of our circumstances if you think about it. There is but a step between me and death regardless of the circumstances that I find myself in because I simply do not know. I do not know that my next step will not be my last step. Have you read the bulletin article, part one of the article by Brother Franklin Camp about this last week of your life? What if you knew that you had one week to live? 
If you knew that you had one week to live, how would you conduct your life during that week? Would you spend any time at all with this book during that week? You knew exactly you had one week to live. Well, his point is, you don't know that you don't have one week to live. You don't know that. You may have one week to live. I may have one week to live. There is but a step between us and death in a very real sense at any moment in time. Because death can come swiftly, suddenly, tragically, and so unexpectedly. And so the frailty of life, the frailty of life and the realization of the frailty of life should not cause the Christian to fear, but rather to focus on spiritual things. And that really is something we should be doing every day because we understand the frailty of life and therefore we determine we're going to focus. And so the psalmist says, my life is continually in my hand. But even under these adverse circumstances, I do not forget your law. And that reminds us that adversity should make us better and not bitter. That if, if anything, adversity should draw us closer to God and not drive us farther from him. And then in verse 110, he does give us some more insight into the obvious precarious predicament that faced him. The wicked have laid a snare for me. You know, man man is not an animal. Man is created in the image of God, and yet his enemies, as he uses this phraseology, the, his enemies were treating him like an animal. They're trying to lay a snare for me just like someone would for an animal. They're trying to they're trying to do me in. They're determined to do me in but I have not strayed from your precepts. Again, reminding us, as in the previous verse, that even in the deepest adversity, I will not stray from your precepts. And think about it. The wicked have always sought the destruction of the righteous. That has always been the case, has it not? And why is it the case that the wicked seek continually to destroy the righteous? In part, if not in whole... It is because the righteous are living rebukes to the wicked. They are just a living rebuke, the righteous are, to those who are wicked. And how many examples of the wicked making an effort to destroy the righteous can we find in Scripture? Example after example. What about Haman and Mordecai in the book of Esther? Haman, he couldn't sleep. He couldn't sleep well at night. He was determined. He was just consumed with the overthrow and the destruction of Mordecai. What about Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem when Nehemiah and the wall builders were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem? They didn't pitch in and help. They were determined to destroy those efforts. What about Herodias? As John the baptizer was in prison and he had rebuked Herod Antipas for taking Herodias, his brother's wife, and being in an adulterous situation, and Herodias was out to get John. And so when her daughter danced before Herod, and Herod offered her anything she wanted up to half of the kingdom, Herodias said, get me the head of John the Baptist. That's what I want. I want his head. And what about 
the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, the religious elite of their day, and their actions toward Jesus and toward the disciples. Oh, on and on we could go with example after example of the wicked laying a snare for the righteous. Will that always be the case? Yes. The question then is, will we determine to be pure despite persecution? Whatever form that persecution takes, as we pointed out this morning. But then in verse 111, here the psalmist writes, Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. And what we're reminded of here is that earthly inheritances fade. It's all going away. You know, there are, there are things that I have, and I know there are things that you have that are really precious treasures to you because they evoke memories of childhood, etc. And there are things you wouldn't take, you wouldn't take anything uh, for. I may have mentioned I have, a, I have a book in my library that is the life of J.M. Kidwell, a late Restoration preacher who started the church in Smithfield, Tennessee. A man who started the congregation there that ultimately led to the conversion of my father's side of the family, the Fosters, and then the Deermans who uh, married the Fosters and, and uh, were introduced to the truth as a result of that relationship. And, and because of that, I had the blessed privilege of knowing the truth from the very young age. And I have the biography of J.M. Kidwell, an original copy of a first printing of it, written by the late brother E.A. Elam, way back in the late 1800s. The church was established in 1868. But that book is extremely precious because it was given to me when I graduated from Memphis School of Preaching by one of my teachers whom I loved and respected, Brother Frank D. Young, who grew up in the little area of Brush Creek near my hometown of Smithfield, and he knew my great-grandfather on my mother's side and his wife, T.H. Nixon, and that was T.H. Nixon's book originally, and it has my grandfather's great-grandfather's uh, name uh, in it. And when he got it in 1909, and when he gave it to Brother Young in 1940, and then Brother Young gave it to me in 1976 and presented it to me, would you like to buy that book? You can't buy that book. <laughs> I don't care what you offer for it. I'm not going to sell you that book. But that book is going to burn up along with everything else, isn't it? But it's nonetheless precious to me, as are many other things, and I know that's the same with you. But the testimonies are a heritage forever. The Word of God will endure forever. Earthly inheritances fade, but spiritual treasures laid up now will meet us again in eternity. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, that leads us 
to a logical transition to this last verse tonight. For where your treasure is, there will your heart will be also. I have inclined my heart, the psalmist says, to perform your statutes forever to the very end. Why? Because those things will never, never pass away. He does not say, though he could have said, I have inclined my hands to perform your statutes forever. We should incline our hands. Our hands should be busy in the Lord's work. But the key is those hands busy in the Lord's work should be properly motivated from the heart based upon the love that we have for the Lord. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, incline your heart to perform. God is concerned not only about what we do, but about why we do it. Why are we doing it? Are we doing it out of duty? Are we doing it out of fear and dread? Improper fear. Or are we doing it out of love? Remember what John wrote in 1 John 4, 18? There he wrote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out, keeps on casting out fear. Because fear involves torment. That's not the way God wants us to serve out of dread and terror. He wants us to have reverential fear, that fear in that sense, but not this kind of fear. Fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And then in the next verse, verse 19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. Incline your heart to perform the statutes, not just involving your hands. One other verse drives this home, I think, very well, too. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul there wrote, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then verse 13, For it is God who works in you, listen to it, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God works in you through his word to produce the will to do it as well as the doing of it. Therefore, we need to spend enough time meditating upon the word of God to create within our hearts an inclination based upon love to perform his statutes forever and to determine that we will do that to the very end. To the very end. And tonight as we close, we ask, is your heart inclined based upon the love that has been manifested to you from the God of heaven through the giving of his only begotten son? Is that love there present to motivate you to obey the gospel of Christ if you have not, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to repent of your sins, to confess him to be the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins? That's not a complicated plan, is it? But it's absolutely essential. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins or perish eternally, Luke 13, 3. And again at verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, Jesus said you will all likewise perish. But he didn't stop there. 
and he enjoined upon us a sweet, loving confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He promised, confess me before men, and I'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And it was Jesus who said so clearly, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16, he who does not believe will be condemned. He who does not believe will not be baptized. But he who believes, if he truly believes, will be baptized because there is where the power lies that we're about to sing about in this invitation song. There is power in the blood. But where does scripture tell us the blood is reached? In the water of baptism. Why? Because God designated it that way. And it is my responsibility to incline my heart to do his will. Initially and then thereafter, continually after I've obeyed the gospel. There may be someone here tonight who needs to return to his or her first love. Who has known the joy and the peace that comes from initial obedience to the gospel. But who has allowed the world to enter in to distract and ultimately to destroy unless repentance is forthcoming. We plead with you to come home tonight and let your brothers and sisters pray for you as you return, not only to them, but most importantly as you return to God and say to him, I have sinned. And recognize that as you do, he will in effect say, welcome home as we stand to sing.